Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. We have been doing land acknowledgements at Awaken for about the last year and a half. Uh, There was a group of Awakeners who gathered to talk about uh, racism in the church, and um, one of the calls to action that that group gave us was a land acknowledgement on Sundays, which is lovely, because that's also one of the calls to action that the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission um, gave to all churches. So here's a map of Canada. We live in Treaty 7, which is that tiny little red area at the bottom there. So basically from the U.S. border up to Red Deer, kind of to the BC border and then almost over to the Saskatchewan border. We are Treaty 7 people. And Treaty 7 was signed in 1877 in the month of September, which means um, Treaty 7 has been around for 144 years. That's that's both a very long time and really in a church when we're going to talk about scriptures that are thousands of years old, not a long time at all. The signers of the treaty, there's three participants Uh, the indigenous people of this region who've been here a lot longer than 144 years, Uh, the the European newcomers, and the land, the land where we were seeking to live together. The reason um, these treaties were signed, one of the big reasons Treaty 7 came to be signed was because British Columbia became a Canadian province about 15 years before Alberta. And British Columbia uh, was building a railroad and they wanted the railroad the, the, the British uh, em- Empire, kind of, uh, the British, the, the Crown, the British, wanted to build a railroad that would go all the way across Canada, but they had to go into land that was not yet theirs. And wanting to make this railroad go, through Can- uh, go all the way through um, Indigenous land, uh, they had to negotiate a treaty with the traditional stewards of the land. And um, I think the, r- the railway, de- railway detail is important to me because I live in Bonas on the railway, and that train goes through my front yard 23 times every 24 hours. <laughs> and it's because of the need for that rail that the treaty was originally, kind of initially, um, needed. And so um, three groups of indigenous people, uh, the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Dakota, and the Sutina, met uh, with representatives of the Crown to negotiate a treaty a peace treaty. We need to build a railway through this land. And so it took um, several weeks, actually, to negotiate the terms of the treaty. And you can go online and read the actual treaty yourself. It's not very long. It's pretty um, convicting and profound, actually, because it hasn't been upheld very well. And one of the lines in the treaty is that together, together, the indigenous um, and the newcomers would work towards the peace and well-being of all. The indigenous, the newcomers, and the land and we would work towards, together, the flourishing of this place so that both the indigenous and the, the newcomers would know uh, peace together in this place. And so, uh, I think you can go to the next slide. Brilliant. This is a, a, a symbol or a crest to represent the treaty, the, the Treaty 7. And so this is a, a symbol that represents um, all of us who live in southern Alberta. We're all uh, participants and are responsible to uphold the terms of the treaty. Now here's something that blew my mind this week. There's this principle called the Seven Generations Principle. Uh, that actually comes from the Iroquois, who are uh, uh, an indigenous nation um, east of Alberta. 
But this seven-generation principle, um, there's actually uh, recordings of this principle that go back to 1100 AD. The seven-generation principle is a really important uh, and very old idea. And essentially, the seventh-generation principle is this. Every single decision you make, when you make it, consider the impact it will have seven generations from now. When you plant a garden, when you take out a loan, when you build a road, like whatever we do, how does this affect seven generations from now? So I learned um, around Remembrance Day, like, like you and, and me, um, a lot of my parents and grandparents share memories of, you know, grandfathers and, and great uncles and, and, and aunts who served in, in the war. So I learned a little bit about my own history and I learned that my great great grandmother was born in 1881 which was before Alberta was a province and before the treaty was signed. So I thought, wow, that's like six generations ago. How long is seven generations? It's actually, in indigenous traditions, um, 140 years. So it's been 144 years since the treaty was signed, which means we are the seventh generation. So how did that decision to sign that treaty seven generations ago impact us today? For me, one of the members of the European newcomer, newcomer group, I would say I've benefited greatly from that treaty and from this land and probably that railway. But I wonder, have the indigenous people who are my age right now benefited in the same way? And has our land that we all share benefited from this treaty? Have me, my people, uh, the indigenous people and the land benefited peace, flourishing, well-being uh, from this treaty? Oh, there's another picture of a railway coming through Treaty 7 land from the Stony Nakoda uh, Mountains. How has the treaty signed seven generations ago impacted us? Guess what else I learned? <clears throat> As of 2018, Indigenous people are the fastest growing demographic in Canada. 42% growth between 2006 and 2016. Indigenous people are the fastest growing demographic in Canada, which I would say is a testimony to extreme resilience and strength, a capacity to forgive and start again. Indigenous people in Canada are also the youngest demographic, 44% under the age of 16, which means when we do land acknowledgements, we're not talking about some ancient thing in the past. We're talking about a very real future. So here is the invitation today for our land acknowledgement. Could we, the seventh generation, renew our commitment to the treaty? Renew our commitment to the peace and well-being of, of ourselves, the Blackfoot, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutina, and this land where we all live and call home? Could the decisions we make today, how will they impact the seven generations of Blackfoot, Sutina, and Stony Nakoda, of us and all people um, who call this land their home? So, 140 years from now, the year is 2161. Perhaps our descendants will tell a different story about our, their ancestors than we have to tell about ours. So as a land acknowledgement today, I thought we would just take a moment of silence and offer a prayer. What would you pray for? What would you long to see for those who gather in Bonesse, who live in Southern Alberta in the year 2161? I imagine as a community we could make like a time capsule with prayers and blessings and tulip bulbs and salves for wounds and bury it 
for those generations that are yet to come. So let's uh, take a moment and in your heart, what are we committed to for those who call this place home seven generations from now? Uh, the next slide is just the, the, the crest again. Oh, ah, that's our land, southern Alberta. Lots of, lots of living ones call this place home. And lots of living ones could benefit from the decisions we make today. So let me pray for us, awaken, and then I will pass uh, this part of the service off to Darcy. Creator God, we believe that the whole earth is filled with your glory. And so give us eyes to see the beauty of this land. We pray for the peace and the well-being of all who call this place home. We pray for the flourishing of this land. We pray that we as a people would learn to cooperate, that we would learn to listen, that we would learn to be in community, that we would learn the art of healing and reconciliation, that we would learn to respect that which has gone before us and those who are yet to come. I pray that you would give us the courage, Awaken Church, to begin that work now for the next seven generations. Thank you for being in this place before us, loving creator, and thank you that you will be here still long after we are no longer here. And so we begin our service today by honoring our commitment as treaty people. Amen. I first of all just want to thank you for letting me speak here. Um, this is the final sermon in our series in Numbers, and uh, I don't know if I'm preaching again in my internship, maybe, um, but regardless, this has been an honor that you guys have, you know, sat there and listened to me and not booed me out of here just yet. Um, so thank you for letting me share this space with you and share my thoughts. I appreciate it a lot. So, but welcome to the final sermon in the book of Numbers. We have made it, and by it, I mean to the end of the book. After our 10 weeks of exploring the wilderness with God and with Israel, we have landed at the closing of the story and an invitation into something new. I think it's important as we close this book that we reflect on what has happened in the previous weeks and what we've observed We've learned a lot, we've questioned a lot about ourselves, about God. We've at times felt depressed and worried. We've experienced deep joy and blessing along the way. And all of that has culminated in today's story. Prior to Numbers, Israel had been led out of slavery by Egypt, or in Egypt by God and his appointed leaders, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. This was all according to the covenant that God had made with Abraham, and here he is, leading his children to the land of the promise. At the very beginning of our series, back in week one, Nikayla mentioned how the desert, this place of in-between Egypt and the promised land, was supposed to help Israel unlearn the habits of Egypt. The Israelites were wrought with nostalgia for what was as they struggled to survive in the wilderness. They wondered when or if they would even get to this land flowing with milk and honey. They pondered the possibility of returning to Egypt because there they had food, they had water, and they had shelter. 
It felt like wandering into a fog so thick that they could only see 10 feet in front of them. But God showed up for Israel, and he remained with them in this desert place, keen to rebuild this familial nation as they stuck together. God's promise revealed a land filled with luscious landscape and giant fruit too big for the one man to carry. Yet the people were large, and because of that, the fear spread like a virus. Whose word would they trust? Unfortunately, their disobedience and worry showed faithlessness, and they were forced to remain in the in-between for 40 more years. This place became riddled with scarcity, abandonment, rejection, and fear. But we learned there was also space to express ourselves, space where fears and worries could be made known without retribution. Sadly, not all learned this, and the entire generation from Egypt awaited their impending doom. As Israelites perished by the masses, life was still to be found. Aaron's budding staff revealed life in the midst of death, and there was suddenly space to imagine anew what might be, despite the circumstances. It felt at times that God was absent, and that we were in this desert place alone, mindlessly wandering from one place to the next. Yet a magical rock, bursting with water and with life, was always near, guiding Israel through the droughted land. We saw serpents terrorizing the camp, at least that's my greatest fear, as more of those from Egypt were put to death. Help came from a strange bronze serpent on a staff, teaching us to literally turn our faces towards our fears. And perhaps best yet, we saw God protecting his people when they had no clue that they were being cursed by foreign nations. Israel went through it all. They wrestled with God, they suffered, and they wondered if they would ever escape that desert place. Still, glimmers of hope were to be found for them. Sometimes they noticed, and sometimes they were entirely unaware of what God was doing. But all along, God has been shaping them and molding them to be the nation that will dwell with God in the land. I hope that during this series, you've had some sense of seeing yourself in at least one of these stories connecting some part of your life with what's going on with Israel and God in Numbers. I pray that it's brought a sense of hope and renewal into your life. But I also hope that it's shown you that it is entirely okay and normal to find yourself in the wilderness. As I reflected on this series this past week and how it has impacted my own life, I thought about a couple things. The first thing is that I don't know if many of you recall, I've said this in the beginning of my internship here, but I came to Awaken from a much bigger church. And while I was excited and it, about the anticipation of working in some place so different, it also terrified me. And early on, I found myself thinking back to how things were because it was more comfortable back there. I was accustomed to it. But I knew I couldn't go back, and so I wrestled in that in-between place, not knowing what to do about going forwards, but not being able to go backwards. I've also found myself coming to terms with emotions and feelings that I didn't know were present in my life. They've brought up fears of scarcity and abandonment and rejection. And in my life, it's always been easier to just simply ignore those things and shove them down into the deep, dark places of me where they don't feed into anything. But Numbers has also shown me that the only way forwards is by facing those and giving space to the uncomfortable and the difficult. But despite all of these difficult challenges of being in the wilderness, there's also beauty and wonder to be had. 
The magic of life in the wilderness inspires awe and imagination. There is desperation, yes, but there's also excitement at the prospect of what is to come. Hope was not withheld from this space. But this hope doesn't make a lot of sense without the desert. Walter Brueggemann says in his book, The Prophetic Imagination, that there are two aspects to prophetic imagination. The first is being able to see what is wrong with the current circumstance. And the second is imagining what things are supposed to or should look like. Where we too often go wrong is when we opt for only one of these two options. If we focus solely on what's wrong, then we risk becoming cynical, as we saw with the Israelites early in Numbers. If we only imagine what things could be, we forget why it's even important or why we're trying to get there. And we neglect the real work that needs to be done now, the change that needs to occur to get there. What would have happened if God had merely brought Israel straight into the promised land after leaving Egypt? Nothing would have been different. They would have set up exactly how Egypt was because that's all that they knew. Transformation must occur for them to be this holy nation with God. And so, we turn to the final story of Numbers, the closing part of the narrative. The last tale in the book of Numbers presents this hope of new things in the face of despairing loss, giving us true example of transformation. It's split into two parts with the first in Numbers chapter 27 and then the second in Numbers 36. If you've looked in your Bible or you have a Bible, you might have seen the, the title. It says the daughters of Zelophehad. But as we're about to see, these daughters were given names. They are Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. These are some very important women in the scriptures as they appear several times throughout the Bible. Only the prophets, this is a fun fact, only the prophets of Moses and Miriam appear more than them in the Hebrew Bible. Their story is highly important, and we find a few of their accounts here in Numbers. The very fact that these daughters are named is a critical detail. Wilda Gaffney says in her book, The Wo uh, Womanist Midrash, that out of the 1,426 personal names in the Hebrew text, only 111 of those are female a mere 9%. And here in our story are five of those. Before the texts of Numbers 27 and 36 is a census in Numbers 26. This is the first time that Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza are named. The census was performed prior to entering the land, in part to determine who was going to receive which portions of the land when they went in. Each part of the land was assigned to the patriarchal household leaders. There were, as Gaffney notes, um, matriarchal household leaders, but they are not included in this wartime appointment of land. The last time we had a census was in Numbers 4, way back at the beginning, when all the generations were counted in the desert after escaping Egypt. And as we've recounted, the, these gener this generation is now all passed away with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. And this new census is counting the descendants of that generation, and critically, those who are going to enter the promised land. After this, uh, after this counting of all the children of Israel, comes our passage, which begins with Numbers 27, which I think is on the screen. And it says, Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the Manassite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, 
Hogla, Milka, and Terza. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And they said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah. But he died for his own sin, and he had no sons. So why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. The problem for Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza is that they had no male relatives, father, brothers, husbands, etc. And because of this, they were specifically excluded from receiving a portion of this land. As a result, their father's name would die off in a land that should have been apportioned to him would fall to somebody else. They're trying to keep this from happening, but they're also trying to continue on their family line through their own blood. There's a lot that's interesting in this passage, but the first thing to note is the phrasing of the women's actions here. It begins, as you notice, by saying that they came forward or they came near, followed by their father's lineage, tracing them all the way back to Joseph. But then comes the phrase, these are the names, which mirrors the very beginning of Exodus 1, which says, I think it should be on the screen as well, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The total number of people born to Jacob was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers in that whole generation. But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The key difference between this text and the one we have in Numbers is that the Exodus list is all male names. The Numbers list is all female. Here in Numbers, though, God is starting something new with his people. And as they near the land that he longs to bring them into, we don't read a list of male names, but rather Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. God wants to continue his blessing of Israel and includes the culturally radical claim of named women in leadership roles. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza are bold, and they intentionally place themselves before God, represented by the tent of meeting, and they demand that Moses give them a portion of the land. They give credible reason why their father um, was not an evil man who deserves no land, and they claim to have a, a, a claim over his portion. The verb they use in, the, in this case is in an imperative form, meaning they aren't quietly asking with gentleness, saying, please, can we have this? They're literally demanding it, saying, give us this part of the land. Moses doesn't know what to do, so he asks God, who promptly responds with a strong affirmation that Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza are correct in their claim. God commands Moses that he grants the women's request and give them a right to their family's portion of the land. He provides a new Torah, a new law, for cases like Zelophehad's daughters who would have otherwise been excluded from any inheritance just because they were daughters. God makes it clear that from this point on, daughters have a right to land. The closing line is, it shall be for the Israelites a statute and ordinance as the Lord commanded Moses. And that's the last we hear of this story. 
until number 36 at the very end when it's brought up again. And there are some similarities, but there are also some pretty glaring differences. Prior to this, it's not abundantly clear whether Moses follows through with the command of the Lord in 27. But from the context, it appears that he did not. For as we read in chapter 36, the patriarchal household leaders from the same line as Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza, they come forward to Moses. And they say, on the, oh, it's up there already. The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance by lot to the Israelites. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zelophehad to his daughters. But if they are married into another Israelite tribe, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our ancestors and added to that of the tribe into which they marry. So it will be taken away from the allotted portion of our inheritance. And when the Jubilee of the Israelites comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they have married. And their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our ancestral tribe. Notice how the five women are nowhere to be found other than a reference to Zelophehad's daughters. Here the request is not from the daughters that they receive land, only that the land apportioned to them would not belong to other households when they get married. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza remain nameless, and they receive no agency until the end of the section where they follow through with the command of Moses. And what does Moses command? And this time he doesn't go and he doesn't consult God. Rather, he merely states that the women should then marry somebody from the clan of their father's tribe. But this doesn't actually give the women any possession of the land. Only that the land that should belong to them will stay within their father's tribe. The land would move from Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza's possession into the hands of whomever they marry. Even here, Moses is not obeying what the women have claimed or what God has commanded. He's merely keeping the patriarchal leaders and lineage happy and intact. After this story, we're left to wonder what happened for quite some time, for this is literally the end of the book of Numbers. This is how it closes. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza do not appear again until Joshua 17. At this point, the transition, transition in leadership has happened. Moses has passed away, and God has passed the torch onto Joshua, who is now the leader of Israel. And the story appears a third time. Now Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Macher, son of Manasseh, had no sons, but only daughters. And these are the names of his daughters, Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. They came before the priest Eleazar and Joshua, son of Nun, and the leaders, and they said, the Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance along with our male kin. So according to the commandment of the Lord, he gave them an inheritance among the kinsmen of their father. Thus there fell to Manasseh ten portions beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which is on the other side of the Jordan, because the daughters of Manasseh received an inheritance along with the sons. The land of Gilead was allotted to the rest of the Manassites. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza approach again, much like in Numbers 27. And the story seems to repeat itself. They simply assert their claim for the land as God has commanded Moses. And what does Joshua do? He doesn't consult God or the other elders who would have been there at the time to advocate for their claim. He simply gives them their land. 
immediately. Joshua here is participating in the reorienting of Israelite culture, where the most vulnerable are met with justice and mercy. You might be wondering, what does this have to do with the journey in Numbers? And why is there this seemingly random story of five women who deserve land but are not given it? I think there are a few things that we can learn from this story of Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. First, these women are an embodiment of newness. Remember back in the beginning of Numbers when we were talking about new things that God was inviting his children into. He wanted to take them away from the things of Egypt and into this new world where things were not as they used to be. Nostalgia ran rampant in the minds of the Israelites and desire for for what used to be stood in the way of seeing what could be. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza enter the story as the children of Israel are about to enter the land. And while the oppressive customs upheld by patriarchal leaders prevented them from inheriting land, they demanded the change. They believed in the image of a new people, of a new land after the time of in-between that would transform the nation of Israel from the oppressive ways of the past into God's new family where all would be free. These daughters are the ones who see the promise of the land, and they believe. And they want to have a part in that promise. The story of Numbers has taught us that some of us and some parts of us have to die in the wilderness. Those parts that are, that are bad, those parts that bring us back into our old ways, those parts that are contrary to what God wants for his people must die. God desires new life and new ways. A couple weeks ago, Nikayla was telling me about uh, a pastor's, I hope I can recall the details correctly, but there was a church that had gone through somewhat of a difficult season, somewhat of a wilderness season, you might say. And when they came through finally to the other side of that, to commemorate the things of them that they were leaving behind of their mindset, their norms, things that they didn't want to be part of their church anymore, they held a funeral for it. And I think they they had a casket, right? And they literally put them in and they buried it. They put it to death. And it begs the question for us, what what do we need to put to death? Have we dared to leave Egypt behind and enter this new land and this new way of life? The story of Numbers has taught us that we cannot enter this new land without letting something, some part of us, die. We cannot bring in the past. This new generation is one that begins with an emphasis on the most vulnerable. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza were advocates for change. And they were bold enough to talk about it. Moses and some leaders were were resistant to the idea because that's all that they knew. If you threaten this custom, it feels like you're threatening everything that they know. One of the popular terms in Christianity today is deconstruction. The definition has become blurry to some and transforms into things that it was not intended to be. See, deconstruction should always be done in a direction that brings us closer to justice and mercy. We ought to be asking the question, what part of the church needs to be buried? What will lead us to becoming more justice-centric and more merciful? What are we holding on to that is preventing us from entering God's new life? What opinions or ideas do we cling to because they're comfortable and they're easy? 
Newness means reconciliation. Newness also means being vulnerable and bold, sharing where we are and daring to sit face to face with what scares us. Jesus's life was filled with redemptive acts of liberation and mercy. And one story that stands out to me is the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and went to receive healing from Jesus. That story holds deep cultural meaning that would have appalled its original audience. Jewish law meant that this woman would have been on the outskirts of society, perpetually unclean due to her bleeding. She wouldn't have been allowed to touch anyone or worship freely. Community would have been difficult for her. No one would pay attention to her. Yet in her desperation, she knew that if she just touched the cloak of Jesus, she would be healed. And as soon as she did, power went out from Jesus and healed her. She was bold. She was desperate. And she believed in the new way that Jesus was introducing into the world. One that overturned that which prohibited her from being healed or living in community. It's women like her and Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza who get it, who participate in the way of Jesus that is merciful and liberating. With new ways also comes new recognition and awareness. You might have noticed how often I named Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. It's not because it's easier or quicker to read. <laughs> it's because their names are important. Like I said in the beginning, very few women are named in the scriptures. So it's important to remember their names and give them identity and space where they deserve it. They are often some of the most important people to read about, and we honor them by remembering their names. Maybe by remembering Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza, we'll begin to learn the names of the many missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada. Their stories that were lost, their names that have been forgotten, all because we weren't paying attention. New ways that are liberating. That's what we see in numbers. That's what we see in Jesus. The story is always moving towards mercy. And at the very end of the Bible, we are given this image of new things in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. One day all will be made new. And God's people will dwell with him in perfect peace. This new way became more real with Jesus and continues to grow. This fulfillment of that vision is our future hope. But Jesus reveals that it makes a difference in our present day. That there is something beyond the wilderness. There is someone who helps make our deserts a little more meaningful. Perhaps after these 10 weeks, you felt yourself journey through the entire wilderness and you're coming out the other side. Maybe you've just started. 
Or even further, maybe you haven't gotten there yet. I don't know if you've noticed, but the book of Numbers doesn't wrap up in a very tidy bow of a conclusion. Israel is still in the desert. And if you're there, that's okay. If you're like me, I felt this week like it had to be wrapped up in some neat, tidy conclusion. Like, we ha- okay, we're done with the wilderness. It's time to move on. But truthfully, I'm still there. Last night, Tatiana and I went to a worship night at another church, and it was all about overcoming. It was all about joy and celebrating good things. And I stood there, and I just felt like I didn't belong in that space because that's not where I am. I'm still in the process of getting there. Earlier this week, somebody, a friend of mine, shared a word or an image with me about my life. And it deeply resonated with how I felt. That I'm still in that in-between place. I'm still asking questions and I'm pondering. But I'm on the journey of bringing back that wonder. Part of the beauty revealed in Numbers that speaks to us today is that we don't go through these desert places alone. The image we talked about early in Numbers was the people being gathered together that we're not on roads of our own entirely ignorant of one another, that we ought to be the church that walks alongside each other. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza are not favored in their context. Everything is against them, and yet they believe in the new image of life that God has spoken of. Will it be challenging? Yes. Will it work out perfectly? It's not certain. But it is certain that things are changing And these five women are the most vulnerable. With no land and no men, they would have been destined for a brutal life. Yet the land belongs to them. The lowly, the meek, will receive the land, not the oppressive and the powerful. The culture is shifting. Jesus, in his famous Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, repeats this and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so as we close this series, my encouragement for us is that we be people who imagine and wonder. That we be people who find ourselves in different parts of this series, some of us remaining in this wilderness place and others just beginning. That we would ask, what of us needs to be left behind? What hope do we cling to that we will find in the other side? And who are we becoming as a people? everything we do should bring us towards one another towards the most vulnerable because that's where we find Jesus that might include some of us here might we give space for their voices and listen with openness and understanding that we're all trying to figure this life out and we all have our fears and maybe we'll continue to see how God is shaping us in the wilderness to be liberating people of justice and mercy. Let's pray. God of grace, thank you for the stories like that of Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Terza. Thank you for their boldness and their courage that permitted new ways of life to emerge amongst your children. For those who continue this work today, we pray your spirit to be upon them, encouraging them and emboldening them to do so. For those whose names are still unknown, we pray your justice and mercy upon them. Give them space to speak 
and bring your people together to work towards justice and reconciliation. Where we need to let go of how things were, grant us humility. Let us leave those things behind in the wilderness. Soften our hearts towards one another, always leading us to care for those who are most vulnerable. When we find ourselves in the wilderness place, remind us of your presence that dwells with us there. Let the stories of numbers, of being in the wilderness, of those who came before us and dwelt with you there, teach us about you. Help us remember their names and find some hope and peace in their journey. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and speaking to us through them even today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.